What's going on, everybody? And welcome into the 119th episode of the Crazy One Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Stephen Gates, and this is the show where we talk about creativity, leadership, design, and everything else that helps to empower creative people. Now, remember, you can listen to the show, get the show notes, and a whole lot more. You can just head over to thecrazyone.com. It's the words, the crazy and the number one.com. And also, hey, remember to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you can get the latest episodes whenever those come out. And also, if you're just looking for more content, it's the holidays. Maybe you're looking for a few more things to do, trying to get those goals done before the end of the year and you have to do your big five. Remember also that The Crazy One is on YouTube where you can get videos on career coaching, tutorials, masterclasses, some of my past keynotes, and a whole lot more. And so there again, just head over to thecrazyone.com slash YouTube. And also, remember, if you've got any questions whenever you listen to these shows, you just want to keep up with my adventures or anything else like that, you can always follow me personally on Twitter or Instagram, and you can follow the show on LinkedIn or Facebook. Now, I think for me, it's always, especially after 119 shows, you're trying to think about like, look, what's left for us to talk about? What are some of the skills? What are some of the things that we probably should go over? Because these are things that I think people probably should work on, know, should be good at, and would help their career. And as I thought about that, I think one of the skills that I've really come to appreciate over the years and think honestly is really undervalued is somebody who is a really great facilitator. It's critical to so much of what we do, right? Just because as creatives in meetings and workshops and brainstorms and interviews, this ability to be able to have a conversation, do I get ideas out of people, to get the best ideas and to work with them is so incredibly important. Yet I found it's just one more of those things that companies just don't teach. And as a result, not enough people really know how to do it. And especially this one in particular, I think that too many people think you have to be like some crazy extrovert or possess some sort of special social skills to be a good facilitator. And the reality is here again, that just isn't true. Like the intent of so many other episodes that I've done, today I wanna fix that problem. So in this episode, I wanna look at what it takes to be a great facilitator what you shouldn't do, and I think a lot of people get into trouble in whatever they try to facilitate, some of the things they do that actually don't work. Take a look at some of the actions and behaviors that you're going to need, and then I'll actually go through and share sort of my rough facilitation playbook for creating the best meetings and workshops you can. Also, like so many other shows, let's start with the basics, right? And just what is facilitation? Why is this something you should care about? Why is it something that is so important? And again, I think a lot of people sometimes maybe get a little bit of a different understanding of what this is. But facilitation is just all about helping a group of people do efficient and meaningful work and honestly helping them uncover their best potential. And that's often through doing whatever work, whatever ideas, being productive, having time well spent, and look, I know that that can feel like a lot of things when it comes to people and social dynamics and things like that. It can feel complicated. But let me boil it down because I think great facilitation really just comes down to two pretty simple things. Now, we'll get into that like most simple things, they can be complicated. But they're just really two things that you need to be able to do. And I would argue in here, this is why this is so important. This should apply to great leadership to being a great team member, to being a lot of these other things, is to first make sure that everyone in the room is heard. This, again, is one of the biggest things because we know, and studies have shown, that most meetings, about 70 to 80% of the time, is dominated by two voices. So just, again, facilitation, even if it's not an official brainstorm, but just an everyday meeting, is important 
so you're sure that everybody feels heard. Now, the second thing is to make sure that there's an actionable outcome every time people come together. So again, make sure that they're heard to be able to do great work, and that again, that we're going to do something about it, there's an actionable next step. But then the other part of that is... And look, and you may be sitting there and thinking, look, Steve, I'm, I'm quiet. I'm not outgoing. This isn't a skill that I you know, think I'm going to be good at. So I also just want to sort of, again, not just let the extroverts win in this. And because for me, I think if you really look at it and you say, OK, look, how do I know if this is something I'm going to be good at? There are a few signs. And I think if you do one or any of these things, you know what? There's actually probably a really good chance that you're going to make an amazing facilitator. And like I said, I think a few too many people don't do this for a few different reasons. But here are some of the things I think if you sort of identify with anything on this list, just hear me out through the rest of this episode and to be able to think about maybe this might be for you. Are you somebody who gets excited when there's a problem to be solved? Again, I think if you're somebody who wants to help guide people through that, you're probably going to be a great facilitator. If you love actually seeing people work together, if you love teamwork, if you love being a part of a team, again, another good sign you'd probably be a great facilitator. You really like to help other people shine. Again, you like it whenever other people are able to have their moment, when they can step up. Again, probably a great facilitator. You notice other people and how they behave. If you're somebody who's always sort of thinking about or solving and looking at what's the social dynamic in a room or how people behave, again, another really good sign. You don't like when ego gets in the way of collaboration. I'd also probably expand that a little bit more to say you probably don't like it when ego or title gets in the way of collaboration. Because again, I think somebody who wants to be able to make sure everybody's heard, again, really good sign. And then the last one is, you look, you like to be that helpful guide, right? Rather than the hero who just wants to be in the spotlight. And that sometimes I think this, a lot of these signs, some of them I think go along with an, an, a kind of an emotional maturity that happens over your career. Some people do it very naturally. But again, this isn't about the strength of your voice. It isn't about your position. It isn't about your title. If you identify with any of those, then I'm going to bet that you have the foundation of being a really great facilitator. Now, I think that while we talk about what could make you and what are some of those signs, I, I think we also have to take a moment about what this role isn't. Because this is one of those things where I think some people get the wrong idea about how to do it well. And, and it sort of harkens back a little bit, and a lot of these center around what I said in that last sentence, around being the hero in the spotlight. Because I think a lot of people think that being the dominant voice, telling everybody what they should think, well, that's facilitation. It's like, no, that's either bad leadership or bad creativity or bad teamwork. Um, that's usually somebody just taking their ego for a walk. But so I think for that, I think there are three really distinct things that you have to make sure you don't do. And again, here I would listen. And if you think, oh, I'm a really great facilitator, maybe have a moment because, again, like feedback and perspectives are gifts. So take a moment to step back and say, again, do I do these things? And you might want to rethink your approach on some of this. But one of the things great facilitation isn't is it isn't coming up with the best solution. I think a good facilitator's goal is to encourage participation, to think productively, not to solve the team's challenge for them. Yes, you can contribute. Yes, you can nudge, stir, agitate, do all those things. But this is not just sort of you going through the motions to get to the idea you want, right? The goal is to focus on guiding the team, not trying to be the person in the room with who is the best, the brightest, the most innovative ideas. And again, I think a lot of people sort of view this as a stage for them to be able to get up there and perform. And again, as we've seen time after time, as we talked about in show after show, that dynamic 
kills creativity. And I think the other part of this that sort of goes hand in hand with that is that really great facilitation isn't necessarily even needing to be a subject matter expert. You don't need to be an expert in every industry or every topic or everything that you're doing to facilitate a good workshop. I think once you make that mindset shift from being the hero into being the guide, you start to really realize that your role as a facilitator is not to solve the team's challenges. You definitely need to be like you need subject matter experts in the room because if that if you don't, then again, then you're going to run into trouble there. But again, that doesn't mean you need to take on that role. The expertise should come from the group, not necessarily the facilitator. And I think as a facilitator, you need to know how group dynamics work, the best decision making tools, how to steer the group to get into the best results. And that's about all the stuff we're about to talk about. But this is why for me, and I've even said this in the past, like I can give somebody my decks to train you on presentation skills or design thinking or leadership maturity or team maturity or any one of these subjects, right? The, the magic is not in the content. The magic is in how you facilitate that conversation. How do you know when do you lean in to be able to press a little bit more? How do you be able to, again, take a look or a glance or a word or a thought or a body language and sort of turn that into a really deep and meaningful conversation around, well, there's something else that's going on there. In that case, it's much more about the facilitation. And again, how to be able to do that than just sort of saying, oh, well, it's just the content. And we mentioned this before, but I want to mention again that this also, to be a great facilitator, it isn't needing to be an extrovert, right? I, and look, I think this myth is engraved deep in, the, deep in the minds of so many people because it's one of the things that seems to make sense. You'll be speaking in front of large groups of people. So shouldn't you be an extrovert? Shouldn't you be charismatic? When Look, I, in my experience, I think if you rely purely on that sort of outgoing ego and personality, in many cases, what that often means is I don't think those people make good facilitators because what you see is that they tend to just wing it. And whenever they just wing it and they sort of rely on that cult of personality, most of the time they actually don't get good results. Some of the best facilitators actually I know are introverts. And this hasn't stopped them from facilitating successful workshops or leading successful teams at some of the world's biggest companies. It really is just coming down to can you confidently guide a group and do you have the toolbox of exercises? Do you know sort of some of the facilitation fundamentals and do you know how to implement them? That's what it really comes down to. And that's why I said, I think actually this is one of those, again, myths that I think we've all bought into that I would even argue, I think in many cases, extroverts do make bad facilitators because like I said, they just rely on that cult of personality way too much. We've looked at sort of both sides of the coin there about if you don't think this is for you, maybe rethink that. And if you think you're amazing at it, maybe take a step back and get a little bit perspective and make sure that you're actually doing it the right way. With those sort of two boundaries in place and those two guardrails, like let's take a minute and really look at what this approach should be. And, and I think that these are the things that for me, whenever I think about the best facilitators, honestly, and again, I would even argue that I think these are the things that that really make the best leaders and make the best teammates. These are the things that you need to keep in your mind whenever you're in a meeting, whenever you're leading a team and doing these sort of things, because I think these are going to be the actions and behaviors that you really need. Now, the first one, and we touched on it a little bit, is you need an unbiased perspective. Because for me, there's nothing worse than a biased facilitator, because what they're doing is they're trying to drive a discussion to a pre-planned and candidly probably obvious to everybody conclusion. Because, again, they want to be the hero. They want to be the, the ego. They want to 
they want to make it about them, not about the work, not about the team, and ultimately not about their customer, or their member, or whoever it is that's actually consuming the work. It's all about them. Because for me, a good facilitator helps the team have great ideas, but I think it also really, you have to work really hard to stay open to the possibilities, to keep them, and honestly yourself, open-minded, not running to the first idea, not running to an outcome, to be able to say, hey, look, that if we want to do something innovative, we need to see where this road goes. We don't want to sort of narrow in on a solution too quickly. And so I think, again, just that ability to be unbiased oftentimes is an act of will. Because even for all of us, it's a part of our natural brain chemistry to want to run to a solution. But again, to be aware of it, and then to be able to see that in play with a group of people, and then how do you keep them open to the possibility? This, for me, is why using different things that we've talked about in the past, and we'll hit on here, my rules for brainstorming, or design thinking methodology, or just something like that, I think becomes really important, because you need some structure in this. And I think that goes to the next point that I think you do need to have strong facilitation skills. But like we said, facilitation is not loud. It doesn't necessarily mean extroverted. Because look, facilitation is hard because you have to navigate so many different types of social dynamics. Again, we've talked about this so many times that most companies love to rely on process. They over-index on a lot of these things because it's just easier. It's easy to try to legislate process to infinity rather than dealing with oftentimes complex social dynamics. But I think a good facilitator has the tools and tricks up their sleeve to be able to really either get the best out of the team or to do things like sort of stopping those circular discussions, helping to deal with those troublemakers who just want to talk over everybody else and to make sure that that group is engaged and really focused and that this is the challenge because no two meetings, no two workshops, no two teams are ever the same. So it's a constantly evolving problem, which candidly is why I love it is because it requires you to have so many different tools and deploy them in different ways and different times and to do these sort of things to be able to get the results you need. I think that often one of the things great facilitators are able to do is to really develop a sense of timing. Because look, I think timing is a key and I would argue often overlooked part of having great ideas. A good facilitator has that sense of timing. And in, they really understand, like, when has the discussion gone off topic? When does it need to be brought back in and reined back in? When is the team sort of done the exercise enough? When have we gone far enough down the rabbit hole and we need to move on? Because I think if you get that timing wrong and you don't let the team explore something deeply enough, you'll tend to find that you keep coming back to it and, and you can't sort of move off of that. If you let them explore it too deeply, then you're going to use up too much of their energy and that they're not going to feel as engaged around some of those other things. And, and so again, it's this kind of game of like energy chicken or something almost where you have to be able to have that good sense of timing and be able to sort of read and react to the room to get it right. But all of this, I think, also really comes down to having a commitment to collaboration. And here again, this is challenging because I think, look, if we're all honest, even with the people who we work with, who we love, who we have fantastic relationships with, even with huge amounts of trust, there's a lot of times where honesty, collaboration can be frustrating. And look, and all too often, I think there's that temptation for people to take on that role is sort of the teacher or be able to just kind of take everything over and guide them the solution, take charge, rather than that role of the facilitator and guide. And it's an understandable one to want to do if you and the team are struggling. But look, I think good facilitators know that they're the guide, not the hero, right? They're in that room to help the team to do their best work, not to show off how smart or cool they are. And they take that time to understand the personalities that are in the room and take the time to create the rules 
for brainstorms and meetings like we talked about back in episode 18. Because that's where, and if you haven't listened to it, I would highly encourage you to go back. This is my seven rules for running a brainstorm. And the reason why is because I think you need to be able to have a set of rules or sort of understanding to help control some of these social dynamics and to get people to invest in collaboration. Because for a lot of us, we either have natural tendencies or things that we built up over time that will prevent us from being good at this. So you need some sort of structure to be able to get that in place and to be able to help everybody and just sort of, again, have a shared social understanding to help control that social dynamic. But I think a lot of it is also you have to be prepared to improvise, right? Workshops are complicated and people can be unpredictable and you won't always, it's not always going to be easy. And so as a facilitator, you need to be prepared for that. I would argue that actually I expect it. I know whenever I go into this, somebody's going to go sideways. Somebody's going to be a problem. Somebody's going to talk like that's just going to be there. And the reason why I go in with that mindset is because then whenever it happens, I'm not surprised. I'm not shocked. I'm like, oh, this is this is just the way it's supposed to be. Because I think if you go in thinking it needs to be perfect and precious, it it always reminds you a little bit of like those people who need to plan out their vacation to the minute, right? Like we have to be here at this minute. They are so obsessed with getting you or the family or the people or whatever it is in there in that minute that they, they forget to have fun. They forget to look around. They miss other spontaneous opportunities because they're so focused on it has to be perfect. It has to be perfect. And like I said, I think this is where, again, you have to be able to just let this happen because good facilitators are able to improvise. And I, look, I think they really master that art of facilitation. They ha- you have to be comfortable with changing the plans on the go. And sometimes I, this is a case where you will see sometimes the facilitator struggle because if you have imposter syndrome, if this is your first time doing it, if you're a little bit insecure about your leadership or things like that, right? Like that insecurity monster can jump up and take the wheel and all of a sudden you start like, you need to talk first. You need to, you know, a lot of energy, bad jokes. Like there's a lot of that thing where all of a sudden it, it almost becomes uncomfortable and almost derailing to do that. And so again, I think to really sort of, again, just to be ready to improvise and know that there's not going to be a set script. But then some of it is also to think about how the team works. And and I think that some of these things really do become important. Like for me, one of the most important things that you need, I think, is a toolkit, is the way to be able to go through and be able to have these sort of different tools to be able to work in different ways. And your toolkits, I think, has become honestly even more important or more in focus since so many of us now work remote. Because look, I think that in many cases, you the old dynamic would often be that traditionally the facilitator would be the one sort of in charge of documenting the findings, writing on the whiteboard, sort of being in that role. I, I would argue even again, traditionally, I'm not sure that ever really worked. But look, the problem with that approach is in, again, the social dynamic that you need to look at and what it is that you really want is where does the ownership sit? Because I think if you as the facilitator are the one who's, again, trying to have the ideas, trying to write everything down, then again, the ownership of what's being said and being done during the day really is with the facilitator, not with the group. And because I think what happens that you'll watch if you just sit and spectate on one of these meetings for somebody who does that, it's a huge problem because what you'll see is over the course of the meeting, the workshop, whatever it is, you'll actually watch the participation, the commitment, and those sort of things actually go down because people start to lean more and more heavily on the facilitator to just like, I know if I don't say anything, the facilitator will, or they'll write something down or they're, and so again, I think that one, just that energy management is bad. I think you increase the odds of that sort of misinterpretation or things sort of going awry. So again, here again, I'm a huge believer in really looking at interactive tools. 
because again, I think that it really is whether it's Mural or Miro or whatever your favorite sort of online whiteboarding tool is, you want to do it in a way where everyone can participate. Everyone can take their own notes, whether they're in person or remote. I even like to use those tools when we're all in person because then they're sort of a digital artifact. And also if people are remote, we all are sort of working on one surface. So again, that sort of community and communal tools, I think becomes really important because it goes into the other thing that I think you need to think about and remember, which is that a team's energy, a person's energy is a finite resource. Because look, energy is a critical component of that facilitation directly influences the outcome of the work. Now, the key here is to treat energy like that delicate, finite resource that it is. And you have to do that in a number of different ways. It can be things like not trying to jam pack the workshops with the most activities possible plan every single minute. Like it's just on, on, on all the time. Now, look, and I think for some people, this might sound a little counterintuitive, but like you might think that cramming in as much possible, really, it shows your value. It shows how good you are and be able to do things like that. But the reality is the only thing that it's going to do is leave the group drained and depleted by the end of the day. And I think it's a real trick. And I think it's one of the things where you can start to tell when you're getting really good at facilitation is whenever you get good at this energy management, then you'll see that the team can start with just as much energy and then end the day with just that same amount or maybe even a little bit more because they feel inspired by the work that's being done. They feel engaged in a lot of those sort of things. And again, it's a bit of an art to be able to do that. But here's the rule of thumb that I always follow, right? Don't ever plan in person, but again, resume can even be more taxing, more than three to four hours of focused activities in a day. Even if you block out an entire day, never have a brainstorming more to three to four hours. And that's about how long the average person can keep focused and cognitively challenged on tasks and delivering their A game. The reality is if you go anywhere past three to four hours, you're just dealing with fractional energy and people's, again, not their full attention you have to really pay attention to the energy management. But then the last thing I think here is that you also don't really want to fall prey to what I would describe as an information imbalance. And that happens whenever basically one person, one group, one party knows more information than the others. And what they do is they don't communicate that to everybody. I think in the workshop setting, you see this a lot of times because it manifests in ways like people... It could be you. Maybe you don't necessarily explain the exercise clearly enough. And so that it's something that is obvious to you. It's a way of working that may be obvious to you. But again, I think that in many cases, and you might not even be aware that you're doing it, you're leaving out pieces of information. You're not bringing other people along. The information imbalance actually becomes really difficult. Now, I think in many cases, you'll start to see this with people who will either come from higher maturity teams come from other settings, and they don't take the time to really assess and accept what is the maturity level and the level of energy for the group that they're actually with. I think this could you know, manifest in other ways around. It could be where people in the workshop maybe use information as power to make themselves feel more important. Well, it's obvious that, that maybe they're a subject matter expert. It's obvious that maybe they have a piece of data or something like that. But what they're doing is you can see that they are clearly and willfully holding on to it to try to have that sort of intellectual superiority over everybody else. Well, again, that's an information imbalance. Here again, we need to keep everybody on the same playing field. So whenever that happens, again, you need to ask the person to explain it, to go into depth, to not assume. But I think looking out for these information imbalances, both in yourself and in the team, I think are the last sort of action or skill you really need. Now, to go along with this, I think you also really need to be able to have sort of a robust toolkit. And this could be of 
different exercises, different icebreakers, different things like that. Because the reality is, is that whenever it comes to decision making or problem solving or ideation, a lot of people want to work in a lot of different ways. You need some sort of a framework to work through. And the thing that I've learned is that the more of these exercises you learn, the more flexible you are, the easier it is for you to improv, the better the workshops and the meetings become. Just because you can start to spot when somebody's getting stuck and, hey, you have something in your playbook, you have an exercise, you have a way of working, you have a way of treating that social dynamic that, again, you can put into play. Now, the importance here is that also, especially with this, we have to recognize that a lot of this experience, a lot of this sort of information is going to come through actually doing it, actually facilitating. And we all start out, and most of us are terrible at it. But you have to start somewhere. And so I think even looking through to be able to get some of these plays or to start with some of these things that are a little bit more predefined and then work out from there to be able to get to the bigger meetings, the tougher subjects, the places where you're being asked to work without a net, I think that's often a really good way to be able to approach this. There's a bunch of these that I like. And so instead of trying to go through them all or describe them here or do those sort of things, um, I'm actually going to put these in the show notes. So again, like I said, at the top of the show, you can just go to thecrazyone.com, go to episodes, go to episode 119, probably scroll about, what, half or two-thirds of the way down into the notes, and you'll see this list. And this is everything from uh, some resources that I've referred to in the past, like the Atlassian Team Playbook, things around the Lightning Decision Jam, Problem Framers, Action Boards, 10 by 10 Brainstorming, Design Sprints. All of these things. But I think having these toolkits in this way of working, I think, can really go a long way to be able to help sort of what you need to do. So a lot of what we've been talking about has been more mindset, right? Like more directional, more things that you need to be able to do. And and my advice here would be whenever you, you know, think about these things, sit down and take a bit of an inventory. Look at these and say, hey, look, do I feel like I have a good sense of timing? Am I able to do that? Am I really able to improvise, like sort of just give yourself a little bit of a scorecard, because then what that allows you to do is start to realize what are the areas that you need to focus on. And many times you do that through, again, you can do it every single day in every single meeting. You can work on these things. You can look at how do you work through a lot of these social dynamics and bring this stuff to play. This doesn't just have to be waiting for big meetings. Actually, I would tell you to do the opposite, right? Practice it every single day in lots of little ways, because as you keep building up and building up and getting better, then you have the confidence and the tools to be really good in those bigger settings. Most of us seem to like, and you know, again, we want the stage and the spotlight. So too often we try to run into those big moments. And then many times, maybe we're not as prepared as we should be. So the last thing I then want to talk about, like I said, we've been doing a lot of talking about what to do, but I want to spend a little bit of time talking about actually how to do it. And with this, this is a little bit of the playbook. Again, I think, I think of whenever I actually will go through and set up any meeting, any workshop, any of these sort of things, these are the things that I want to do. And what I want to do is to sort of try to share some of these more practical things that you can use all the time. And what I want to do is to sort of break it down into four parts, things that I think are good to do before the meeting or the workshop, Things that are good whenever it starts, things that are good to do in the middle, and things to do as you're wrapping up and towards the end. Because, again, we're talking about energy management, social dynamics, a lot of these things. I think some of these things will help you be able to get people in the right mind frame, be able to get them in the right level of energy, so that you can be as successful as you can. Now, the first one, which I think often goes overlooked, is that I'll sort of sit down and think to myself, look, how do I want people to feel? Whenever they walk into the room, whenever they sit down, 
What do they experience? What do they see? What do they hear? How do I want them to feel? Do I want them calm? Do I want them energetic? Do I want them hyped up? Do I want them relaxed? And I honestly think about then, okay, once I understand that state of energy that I want them in, then I think about how am I going to set the scene in a way that that room is set up to get that energy? And now again, I think these are going to be things like the way the room is set up. Is it, in, is it sort of like long rows of chairs? Is it round tables? Do I have people clustered together? How many people? How far away are they from me, right? Again, I'm starting to think about some of that social engineering the way I set up the room. Think about the lighting. Again, if I want people energetic, very different lighting than if I want them calm and relaxed. I think about the music, the decorations, or a lot of these sort of things. And look, it's a small thing, but I think that just starting here, it can go a really long way because if people feel at home, if they feel like whatever that energy is, then I think it really is one of those things where they they see what it is that you want them to do. It puts them in that mind frame. And in many cases, they know and they understand that you are thinking about the details and that you are trying that this is something that you care about before you've even walked in the room, before you've even said a word. And so again, setting up your credibility and getting people in that mind frame, I think is really important. Now let's talk about next. I think the other part of this is getting the right number of people in the meeting or workshop can be a huge factor in its success. Because the reality is, if you invite too many people, you run the risk of losing control over all that facilitation because there's too many voices and too many groups and there's just too much. But then on the inverse, if you invite few too few, if you invite too few people to the workshop, then you're going to be lacking that diversity of thought and that energy that you're going to need as you go through the day because Again, everybody's energy varies a little bit, so I need to make sure that I have enough people to keep the group going. And so for me, the magic number in participants, usually whenever I'm doing that, is that I want either a meeting or a group of six to eight people for every one facilitator. Now, look, I think as you get better, you can probably, depending on the subject matter, maybe go up to like 30 at most. But I, for me, I can't facilitate over more than 30 by myself. And like I said, that's only on very, very specific subjects. But again, I think this is something that people just don't think about. Like not long ago, I had a CEO ask me how they, they think, what would I do with the approach of having a 300-person brainstorm? And my response was to have 50 individual brainstorms. Because to me, like I need six-person, eight-person groups, especially because this was a lower maturity company. And so for me, again, I don't want three, a group of 300 people in a brainstorm is just a disaster, right? Like there's no way, like you're going to have four people that talk and everybody's completely checked out. So again, I think you need to get the right number of people in the room. But then I think the other part is you just need to get the right people in the room. Because this is the thing, beyond having the right number, you also have to make sure that you have the right number of people in that six to eight person group. You have to make sure that all the different subject matters are represented so you have those relevant perspectives, you have the right amount of information, and ensure that you actually are able to achieve that outcome that you really need. Now, look, I think the danger here is, and we all, I'm sure you all already thought of it, right? The danger here is that you're going to add people who may not need to be there because of things like their title, right? We're all thinking about executives and those sort of things who, again, may not be the, the key to that, but... For politics, social dynamics, things like that, we're like, oh, look, we need to invite the boss. Look, sometimes this happens. But I think if it does, here again, you are the facilitator and you need to construct things and ways of working to be able to deal with that. So for me, like, if this is something that happens, 
then what you do is you do something like putting a rule in place where everybody has to leave their title at the door so that everyone shows up and they are equals. Everybody from the intern to the CEO, their opinions are all equal. It is then your job to enforce that because what you're going to watch is a social dynamic. The person with the title, the person, again, the, the person who is the leader, people are going to want to listen to them, defer with them, overly agree with them, and you're going to have to call bullshit on it. And it might be uncomfortable. It might be a little bit hard. But again, I think that those sort of things are really critical. So I think those three things, I think, are critical to be able to get your workshop, your meeting right before it starts. Set the scene, the right number of people, and the right people. Now, you've got, it, you've got that sort of figured out. So now we're going to start. And I think whenever it starts, one of the first things for me that becomes really important is, look, you can do a little bit of research on who people are, but I think it's important to get to know who those participants are. Right. And again, I think whether you're acting as an external consultant, as you're doing an in-house workshop, all of this really is about focusing on people, trying to understand who these participants are. What is this group dynamic like? How can you best match the workshop to their knowledge? And again, this is what it is I'm doing is how many people I'm just watching. I'm, I'm taking it all in. Who are the people who are really prone to speak a lot? Who are the people who are prone not to speak at all? Is there a good balance there? Is it out of balance? What's the energy feel like? Are people really awake? Are they really disengaged? A lot of this really is, again, I'm now starting to set, again, what are the tools that I deploy? What are the different things that I do? What are the, how much energy do I have? Am I, again, if they're really quiet, I'm going to be bigger and louder and more engaged. If they're really loud and engaged, I'm maybe going to be a little bit kind of softer because I don't want to get them too amped up and burn them out too soon. But I think one of the best ways to start to get to know this and to watch the group dynamic, and here's the other thing, you can even have the exact same team depending on the time of day you run it, depending on where you are in a project, their energy level and their dynamic can change. So again, I think this is something you have to do every single time. Don't take it for granted just because you've done it with a team before that you necessarily understand where they're at because people's mindsets change. This is why I'm a huge believer in icebreakers because I think if you run an icebreaker and you do this, it's really something that will help be able to, I think one, get a sense in this read on the room it helps to build trust. It can create some energy. And like I said, I think it gives everybody there a chance to be able to get to know each other or just to be able to shake off whatever is going on. So here again, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post some of my favorite icebreakers that I've done um, in the show notes. So you can go in and be able to do those. But like I said, I think in many cases, reset the energy, get to know the team. Icebreakers are a really good idea. Now past that, and look, I know that not everybody gets excited about like, you know, agendas or setting expectations. But I think after you do that icebreaker, you really need to be able to be able to kind of set what is the agenda. And I think because what you want to do is you want to share what's the purpose and goal of this meeting, of this workshop, because I need to make sure that everyone's aligned and focused on that, that we've said it out loud, that we can refer back to it. Because I want everyone to be able to recognize, again, whether or not what they are saying, what they are doing, how they are acting is helping this as we go through the day or through that meeting, because this is about an, a shared goal not an individual person. And look, and I think it also gives you, like I said, something that you can refer back to to say, hey, remember, we said this is what we need to achieve, or this is, we're doing this part now, and we're going to get to that other part later. It, it really gives you the ability to help create some focus and help with that social dynamic a bit. And then I think the last thing before we get started, and again, I know these aren't always the most fun ways to get started, but look, I think they paid huge dividends. The last thing for me is just go over the logistics and the ground rules. I know it's boring. I know it may not sound great, but it can make a big difference. Because look, I think in many cases, if you don't, people will impose their own logistics and ground rules, which are often going to fight your facilitation. 
So look, take a moment at the beginning of that workshop and set those ground rules and the logistics. This could be everything from where the bathrooms are to when are we going to take breaks to, again, what are the rules of engagements? Those seven rules for brainstorming we talked about back in episode 18. These sort of logistics and ground rules set these down up front because if people know when the breaks are, if they know where the bathrooms are, if they know what the social dynamic is and be of those sort of things, then again, they're going to be much more engaged and not just sort of making up their own rules or thinking about, gee, when are we going to take a break or doing some of those things? Because what you want to do is then as we talk about the, the middle, the heart of what it is you're doing, really as a facilitator, what your job most of the time is, is you're really the protectors of that, what I'll describe as like a participation democracy. Because what you have to do is you have to make sure that each participant feels comfortable contributing. We talked about this in the beginning, right? And this doesn't always happen because you're going to have people with all kinds of communication styles, some that are louder, some that tend to drown out everybody else. What you have to do is, again, when we talked about, as you're looking at getting to know the participants, looking at that social dynamic, depending on what that mix is, depends on how do you create that participation democracy. If I have everybody who is doing really well, they're sort of socially balanced, then we can probably all brainstorm as a group because they're going to be conscious about giving each other turns. But if they're not, then I think, again, and if you see somebody that's trying to control the way the team is sort of working, then that's one of those things where I'm going to ask everybody to do is then to go work on their own, think on their own, write down their own ideas, and then come back and share those thoughts with each other through activities that I'm leading. And, and that could be something where, like, I'm trying to give everybody a set amount of time. So everybody gets five minutes, and it's a hard five minutes. But that way, I'm sure that everybody has that space. And whenever the person is talking, just let them talk. Right? Do five minutes to let them talk about what their idea is and then five minutes for feedback. Again, I need to make sure that there's a participation democracy. And again, you can use the exercise and the structure to achieve that. Don't think that it's just going to happen naturally because it almost never does. But this is the thing is that you have to put everybody on equal footing and give them an equal voice. And this is why facilitation, I think, even in the most ordinary meeting is so important because, again, if people don't feel heard and they don't participate, they tend to check out. But, again, this is the thing that you have to do is to make sure that you're looking at that social dynamic and creating that participation democracy because that is the biggest thing to be able to get to really great ideas and great work. Now, whenever you've done that, so we've talked about the, the, sort of that before, start, and middle, you've gotten through that and you, you want to sort of be able to start to wrap it up. Now, here again, I think that there's a few really good things because I think most of the time, this is where these meetings completely fall apart because we aren't thinking through what comes next. I think one of the big things as we talk about energy management is to think about how are you going to finish on a high? You started on that high with an icebreaker. You went through a lot of work. People have been giving a lot of things. You want to make sure that you end on that high because this is the last thing people are going to remember. Right? You want them the next time that they meet with you, the next time you're the facilitator, they want to come in. It's like, oh, man, this is going to be fun. This is going to be great. I, I want to bring my A game. This is something that's going to be really good. That's the way I want them to show up, not, oh, crap, here's another useless meeting. I just have to survive this for two hours so I can get back to doing what really matters. So, again, this could be all sorts of things. It could be a recap to everything you've accomplished. It could be something fun like a team building exercise. It could be sort of an icebreaker in reverse of sort of like a, a team building sort of exercise. It could be doing fun recaps or storytelling or, you know, improv. A lot of these sort of things of playing back what happened in that meeting. I think it really is about thinking about how do you start and end on that high to be able to do that. So again, people leave in a really good place. But I think after you've been able to do that, 
there's really sort of three things that I think are critical, both to the team and for you. The first one, I think, is just to take a minute before you break that workshop, before you send everybody off, and make sure you build time into this to really just look at and assess, did you complete your goals, right? Just take that moment to be able to look at that. If the answer is yes, great, well done, move on to the next part, which is the next steps. But if no, and I think that's one of those things, not every one of these goes great, not everyone achieves it, not all these go smoothly, some problems are really complicated. I think if the answer is no, then I think what you need to do is you need to make sure you understand why that goal was not reached and put together a clear plan to be able to get there. I think this could be doing another meeting, adding a different group, putting in other things. It could be maybe taking the problem that you realize is too big and breaking it down into smaller pieces. Because sometimes you do that. We're like, oh, this is a solvable problem. And whenever you get into it, you're like, this is so much messier and more complicated than I ever imagined. But again, as a facilitator, these are all within your grasp, but you aren't just responsible for the dynamics of the meeting. You are ultimately responsible for the success and the quality of that idea. So I think in that case, what you want to do is to communicate those next steps. It's the last thing you want to do. Remind everybody what's expected of them after that workshop. Make sure all the participants have a clear understanding of what those next steps are, and they know what tasks they have to do, and how, again, this is laddering up to the bigger picture. Now, the last thing that I like to do throughout this process, and look, I think in many cases, this is a process. Meetings, workshops, things like this string together into ideas, products, projects, things like that, is for me is always sort of trying to ask and solicit that feedback. I think you can try to ask for feedback on the workshop, right? Like do that before that particular workshop or meeting ended. I think you can try to ask for feedback on the entire process. So Whenever there are a few of those, whenever the larger goal has been accomplished, say, hey, I'd like feedback on that. And I think you can also ask for feedback on your facilitation and how, what people thought worked really well. What did they really like that you did? What were the things that they found really energizing? And then honestly, and again, sometimes this is a little bit difficult, but ask them for what are the things that didn't? What were the things that they found off-putting? What were the places where you stepped on one of their ideas? What were the places where, again, you could have done something better? Because again, all this is for you around the facilitation is it's building that self-awareness. Because like so many other things with creativity, there's not a right answer here. You know, for me, it's, I'm a big pool player. I always love to play pool. Like one of the quotes that I always come back to is I think great facilitators, and I think this is to quote Eddie Felsen, if you don't know who that is, look it up. It's a character that Paul Newman played in the movies, The Hustler and The Color of Money. He would always describe needing to be a hustler as sort of being you, somebody who needed to become a student of human moves. I think facilitation is really that same way. I think Look, this is, <laughs> this is often where like the difference between leadership and manipulation is just intent. I, I think in this case, right, the ability to be really good at hustling people or the ability to be a really good facilitator probably just comes down to intent. But it is that I, ability to be able to focus on the social dynamics, to be able to focus on people, to be able to read them and sort of sometimes give them what it is they need, even if they don't know that they need it. Sometimes that can be energy. Sometimes it can be challenging an idea. Sometimes it can be asking them to work in different ways, to show up differently as a teammate. This covers a lot of ground. And facilitation, again, goes into a lot of these things. That's why I think there's so much sort of shared DNA between facilitation and leadership. But this would also be something that I would really encourage everybody who wants to get into leadership to start doing. Because I think that's often one of the biggest things that people struggle with is they say, oh, you know what, look, I think I really enjoy doing these things. I think I would enjoy leading people, but I don't know where to start. I don't know how to get into these things. Everything we've talked about today is a great way to start. And you can do it every single day in every single meeting with your team to be able to start practicing these things. 
because these are the skills in so many of these things that make really great teammates, that make really great creatives, that make really great leaders. So, like I said, I think just think about some of these things. Figure out how you can put them into practice. And again, go through that playbook and try some of these things out and do that self-assessment around some of those actions and behaviors and see sort of where you stack up in that. I know we talked about a bunch of things today that I said were in the show notes. So remember, as always, I've got all the show notes and all those things over at thecrazyone.com. Just go to thecrazy1.com. Also, I ask every time, always really appreciate it. If you enjoy this content, it's getting put out there for free. Do me a favor, take a minute, go to your favorite podcast platform and leave a review. And finally, everybody in legal always wants me to remind you that all the views here are just my own. They don't represent any of my current or past employers. These are just my own opinions. And as always, I say it every time because I mean it every time, but I'm always so incredibly appreciative of your time. I know that time is truly the only, only real luxury any of us have. I'm always incredibly humbled. you want to spend any of it listening to me? Go out. Try some of this stuff out. Make the next meeting better. Be able to make the next workshop better. This is often such a big breakdown for so many of us, and the tools are right there for all of us to be able to make it better. So go out, see how it goes, and as always, stay crazy.